you turn with me to John chapter 8? John chapter 8, we're picking it up in verse 12, and we'll be reading down to verse 30. And as you turn there, you'll probably notice that we are skipping over a section, specifically chapter 752 uh, through 811. And one of the things that you, as, as you aim to preach through the Bible, book by book, and one of the benefits of doing that is that, well, you can't skip over certain passages of the Scriptures. You can't skip over it because it's too difficult to understand, or people might have a hard time accepting it, or people might not, you think, be too interested in it. Um, but uh, we are skipping over this particular section, and before we actually get into our passage, let me just briefly tell you why. So depending on the version of the Bible that you might have. You might have a, a, a footnotes, or you might have that particular section uh, bracketed off, and, it, and, it'll pro- and it'll probably say that, the, uh, that this particular section wasn't included in the earliest manuscripts. And what that means is that this particular story, which is the story of the woman caught in adultery, wasn't in the earliest uh, copies of the Greek New Testament, and which is, dates back all the way to about uh, the year 200. And so later on throughout history, this particular story made its way into the Bible. And so over the years, over, church, over the course of church history, uh, many scholars and pastors and teachers have come to the conclusion that this isn't uh, original to John's gospel because it wasn't in the earliest manuscripts. In fact, um, the early church fathers or the early church pastors, as they were pastoring their churches and preaching to the gospels, uh, they oftentimes didn't uh, work through this passage. And what that means, what it means is that, that, uh, that it's not in the earliest manuscripts. It means that, that we can't uh, confidently say that this passage is, is part of the divinely inspired Word of God. At some point throughout church history, this story made its way into the Gospels. In fact, as, the, as, uh, as scribes um, intended to, uh, to, to uh, copy the Greek New Testament... Uh, scribes didn't really know where to place this particular narrative. In fact, uh, throughout church history, the, this particular story has been placed in, in at least three different places in the Gospel of John and at least once in the book of Luke. And so over time, nobody had any idea where to insert this particular story. In fact, even in this, part, in this, uh, in this section, it doesn't really seem to fit. Because for the past couple of weeks, we've been working through the, the Feast of Tabernacles, going, uh, starting from John chapter 7. And then when you get to 752 or 753 in the story of the woman caught in adultery, it doesn't really make any sense because it interrupts the flow of the narrative. Because all of a sudden, if you read through it, it just seems like it's a different context, a different setting, a different day. And then this happens. And then, and then in, 8, uh, in 812 begins the conversation again that Jesus started with the Jews and the Pharisees back during the Feast of Tabernacles. And so the story is kind of interrupts the flow of the narrative. And so, um, and so the reason why uh, I won't preach it is because I don't think it's the divinely inspired Word of God, and that's what preachers aim to do or should do on Sunday mornings, is to preach the Word of God. Now, I would certainly teach from it. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that you should skip over it in your personal reading. You can, 
by all means, read through it if you like. And there's certainly things you can glean from it and learn from it. And it's not inconsistent with what anything that Jesus would say or do. I just don't think it's divinely inspired word of God. It doesn't mean that the story never happened. In fact, there is no evidence telling us that the story never happened. And it's a good one, and it's a powerful story. But again, it's, it's not the divinely inspired word of God. And then there's questions, well, then how in the world did it get to the Bible anyway? And that's a very long story, but uh, in short, I'll tell you that it's, be- it's mainly because of the King James Version, which isn't a bad version, but it's not the most accurate uh, translation of the Bible. Um, and that was translated from a Latin version of the Bible, and that Latin version came from a uh, hastily compiled uh, uh, manuscripts of the Greek New Testament. And so even the Latin version wasn't as accurate as it could be, which then gave us the King James Version. The King James Version became the dominant version for a very long time until scholars began to really study the scriptures and the original New Testament manuscripts and came to realize, okay, there's a lot of uh, discrepancies and a lot of errors. And this particular story of the woman caught in adultery is one of them. And so because it's been in the Bible for very long, well, then translators have always kind of felt the need to continue to keep it in the Bible, but with a footnote telling you that it's not in the earliest copies. Because otherwise, it just disappears, and then people, many people, even those who are not churched, are somewhat familiar with the story of the woman caught in adultery. And so it's maybe later on, and maybe decades from now, it'll disappear, or maybe it may come out of the Bible, but... Anyways, that's probably much more technical than you probably wanted, but um, I felt the need to kind of address why we're skipping over the Bible. I'm not trying to be unfaithful to the Word of God in any way, but um, this is why even many preachers today will skip over the passage and explain why, and so this, this is why. And again, if you have any questions at all, would love, would love to, to talk about it. So anyways, we're picking up in eight, chapter 8, verse 12. Again, this is continuing in the Feast of Tabernacles. This is a conversation between Jesus, excuse me, and the Jews and the Pharisees. It says, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, My testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says where I am going, you cannot come. He said to them, you are from below. 
I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true. And I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you because your word is living and active and is sharper than any two-edged sword. Fathers, we pray that your, that your word would pierce our hearts this morning. It's not anything that I can do, Lord, but this is something that only you can do through the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray that you would teach us this morning. We pray that you would show us Christ. We pray that your word would would take root deep in our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Who are you? It's, It's a good question, and it's an important question. And it's important for us to know, right, who we are, to be self-aware, to know our likes and dislikes. We tend to identify ourselves by, by what we like and don't like, by what we do, what we don't like to do. And one of the things that we enjoy doing, and in, not in a prideful manner, but sometimes we just enjoy talking about ourselves. We enjoy telling people what it is that we like and what we don't like and what we do and don't do. And we enjoy taking uh, like personality tests, like the Myers-Briggs, right? These things can be helpful in telling us uh, better who we are, how we think, uh, uh, what our, our tendencies are, and wh- how we get our energies from, and, and things like that. But the thing about how we communicate to one another and the thing about these tests is that it's so easy to lie. And may, we, we may not intentionally lie, but there are things about us that we perhaps wish were true and we think are true, but are not necessarily true. Maybe we wish we were a certain way and that's what we portray to other people, but where it's not necessarily true, even though we think that it's true. Knowing yourself is important, especially as a Christian. You need to know who you are. There's a question in the narrative. That question is, who are you? And this question is posed to Jesus, right? And as we've been walking through the Feast of Tabernacles and in John chapter 7, there's this question. We saw this last week. There's a question about Jesus. Who are you, Jesus? Where are you from? Is he the Messiah? Is he the prophet? Uh, He says that he comes from this place, but we know that the Christ comes from this place. So who are you really, Jesus? Right, and for us, it's important for us to know, to be certain about who Jesus is. But it's also important about it's also important for you to know who you are, as well. And so, 
who you are is one of the questions, one of the three questions that we are going to see in this passage. And so this is probably the simplest sermon I have because it's, only, it's essentially only one point. Even though on your bulletins you have two, but, but the first point was about the section we talked about earlier. But there are three questions in the, in the narrative that really kind of drive the narrative forward. And so if 753 to 811 is not to be considered part of the narrative, then that means that verse 12 picks up right where 752 left off last week, which is during the Feast of Tabernacles. And then during this feast, Jesus makes the statement, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so what I'm doing, just so you know, from what I'm doing from here on out, down to verse 30, is hanging everything on this one statement that Jesus makes. In fact, it is with this one statement that drives everything else, and even down into chapter 9, when we get to the story of the man born blind, which you might say literally walked in darkness. And something you need to know about the Gospels is that not everything is written in chronological order. So just because we have a sequential order, right, after 8 comes 9, after 9 comes 10, doesn't mean that the events actually happened in that, in that order. I mean, the book of Luke is probably the most chronological of the four Gospels, but the other Gospels are not intended to be, to be put together in a sequential order. And so many times the Gospel authors will write, will take events out of their chronological context and place them in different ways or in different contexts in order to either communicate a specific truth or to press home something that they want you to know. And so the ha- events that happen in chapter 9 with the man born blind doesn't necessarily mean that it came after this event in chapter 8, but it kind of flows beautifully because we have Jesus' statement that he is the light of the world and this contrast between light and darkness, and then we have the man born blind who was walking in darkness, physically and spiritually. So, anyways, Jesus makes this statement in verse 12, and it's incredibly important. Jesus in the Gospels never wastes any words, but is intentional with everything that he says, and everything he says is for a purpose. But Jesus says he is the light of the world, and that is meant to point us back to the Old Testament. What do you do when you are in the dark? Where you look for any semblance of light, right? And whenever you see the light, even if it's just a small glimmer of light, you go to the light and you follow the light until you are in the light so that you can see clearly, right? If you, have you ever been in a place where it is so dark, so pitch black that you can't even tell whether or not your eyes are open? I mean, that's what true darkness is like. And in the scriptures, specifically in the Gospel of John, darkness always symbolizes lostness. Because, in, because darkness, right, it's a sense of being lost. You can't see, you can't know where you're going, you're fumbling around trying to feel for something, but you can't. And so, Jesus is pointing us to the Old Testament. And what did God do for these people when they were walking through the wilderness? Right, he, he led them. After they left slavery in Egypt, right, they were in the desert. They had nowhere to go. And he led them by a pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire during the night. 
right? If you're in the middle of a desert, if you're just stranded there and there's no life in sight, how do you know where to go? And you, you don't, right? You just pick a direction and you hope it's the right direction that you'll come to some water, to some food, or to some people before you die. The people of God were came out of Egypt, right there. God parted the seas and then closed the seas and so there was no turning back. But then here they are in the middle of the wilderness. They had nowhere to go. They had, had no idea, no compass, no map. And they only had the Lord. Only the Lord could guide them to where they needed to go. Jesus says, whoever follows me will not be lost anymore because he is the light. And the word light is heavy with Old Testament allusions. So for example, Psalm 27.1 tells us that the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is a stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Psalm 119.05, a psalm on, specifically on the word of God, says your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Isaiah 49.6 tells us it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Right, so the word of God is described to us as a lamp to our feet. The word of God is what directs our path. It helps us to know the way. And Jesus and salvation is, is, is compared to light itself, that Jesus is the light of the nations, that he is salvation. As we're thinking back to the Old Testament and the people of God walking through the wilderness, where was the light of the Lord leading the people to go? It was to the promised land, right? And there was no way to get there than by following the Lord. So then in response, the Pharisees say that Jesus is bearing witness all by himself, which makes his testimony untrue. Right? Somebody were to make a claim or to make an accusation against you saying that you stole their car, and you said, no, well, then it's just your word against his. But then if somebody else comes along and says, yeah, I seen him do it, well, then that person's accusation just gains much more credibility because now it's not just one person's word against another. And so this is kind of what they're thinking when, when they're saying that you're bearing witness to yourself and calling yourself the light of the world. And Jesus has plenty, plenty of witnesses, and we'll get to that a little bit later. But what I'll say right now is that Jesus points to two witnesses here in the text, and that is himself, and that is also the Father. Again, think of light. You could say that light itself has two witnesses, because where does the light come from? How do you know a light? How do you know that there is light? You just look at it, right? You know that the light is there because it's there. But also the light doesn't come from itself. It doesn't just appear out of thin air, but it comes from a source, whether that's a light bulb or a light fixture or whatever. And so there's something that is providing the light. So Jesus is the light that proceeds from the Father, that comes from the Father. And he, Jesus, as he said before, does not come of his own accord, but he is sent by the Father and provided by the Father. And then that leads to this question of where is your Father? Right, Jesus, you're talking about your Father, but where is your Father? And the answer is so simple. Jesus has said before, and we see this in the Gospel of John, that to know him is to know the Father, and that to see Jesus is to see the Father. And Jesus also says that I am the way, the truth, and the life, that no one comes to the Father except through me. 
So if you want to know where the Father is, then you just need to follow Jesus. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So Jesus is the compass and the map to God, who is, by the way, the promised land, who is paradise itself. There is no paradise. There is no eternal life. There is no heavenly places apart from the presence of God. And to follow Jesus is to come to the presence of the Father. The Christian religion is not about performance. It's not about works. It's not about a code of, uh, of ethics. It's not about your conduct. But it is about following a person. That's what it's all about. Where we tend to define ourselves by who we are. But the most important thing about who you are is that you are a follower of Jesus Christ. That's your main profession, so to speak. We are here to follow Jesus and to help each other follow Jesus and introduce, introduce the world to Jesus and help them to follow Jesus. So it's all about following a person. And so, how are you doing with following Jesus? How do you... What's it, been, what's it been like lately? Has it been a struggle? Has, it been, has there been just things in your life, maybe preferences of, getting, of just getting your own way? Desire to do your own thing? Maybe you've been distracted by sin? So what's it been? How's it been lately in following Jesus. And maybe it's been good, right? Maybe you're pursuing the Lord. And that's well and good. But just remember, right, we are called to follow Jesus. Right? Through trials and tribulations, through times of peace, through times of joy, through times of plenty, through times of lack. That's what we're called to do, to follow Jesus. Jesus, who left the heavenly places, who left his royal throne to come to us, to live like one of us, and to die for us. Jesus is the example that we are to follow. So even in trials, you can still follow Jesus, and you should still follow Jesus, because there is no other way to the Father than through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who leads us to the land of plenty who leads us to the heavenly places. Jesus is the one who is a lamp to our feet and guides our path. Jesus is leading us to the promised land where God dwells. And nothing is worth giving up to forsake following him. Nothing is, is worth looking back and to stop following Jesus. Continuing the passage, Jesus says then that he's going away and that you will seek me and you will die in your sin. And where I am, you cannot come. And that leads to the second question, will he kill himself? Is what the Jews ask. So the Jews said, will he kill himself? And he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. He says to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. 
So the people seem to be thinking that whatever, wherever Jesus is intending to go, they're not going to want to follow him because they presume to be that he's going somewhere where they are not going to want to go. I don't know so much today about what they teach, but back then it was, you could say it was accepted doctrine among Israel, among the Jews, among the rabbis, that if somebody took their own life, if somebody committed a suicide, then that automatically puts them in an eternal destiny away from the presence of God. Or in other words, though they wouldn't say it this way, but, they, but in other words, it's hell. They see it as sort of the unforgivable sin, and hence why they ask, does he mean to kill himself? Because wherever he's going, he says that you cannot come. And in their minds, the only place that they cannot go and would not want to go is this eternal separation from God. So, I, you know, so taking, so suicide is not an unforgivable sin. But anyways, that is not what Jesus is intending to do. He's not intending to kill himself. It is not where Jesus is going, and that is not where he's intending to lead the people to. But Jesus is right about their not following him. But it's for different reasons. And the reason that they cannot follow him is because they are from below and Jesus is from above. They are of this world. Jesus is not of this world. And as long as they remain a part of this world, they cannot and they will not follow Jesus. Instead, they choose to remain in darkness. In John 3, 19, Jesus says, And this is the judgment. The light, that is Jesus, has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Right, so Jesus come into the world as a light for the world. And people love the darkness. They'd rather be enveloped by lostness than to come into the light of Jesus Christ. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie The Matrix Reloaded, but I love the scene towards the end where Neo, who's the protagonist in the story, meets the architect, and he, through conversation, realizes that that his people or his world has been in this perpetual cycle of needing rescuing. And it all comes down to a choice. Will you choose the one you love most or will you choose to save the world, essentially? And he realizes that the, that the problem is choice. The ability to choose or to make decisions, right? We make decisions on every, every single day. And this is a gift from God, but it's also a sort of Achilles heel, kind of our greatest weaknesses. Because let's be honest, we don't always make the right choice, do we? Sometimes it's, for, it's because of lack of knowledge. But sometimes, or many times, maybe more than we care to admit, it's because we have our own sinful preferences and tendencies. Even though we know what is right, we don't always do what is right. Sometimes there's this disconnect between the head and the heart. Your choices and your everyday decisions show what you care about most, what you value most, what is most important to you, and even what your preferences are, even if those preferences are sinful. But there is one decision that matters most, that is of eternal significance, and that is the choice to follow Jesus or not. I am the light of the world. 
whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Otherwise, Jesus says, you will die in your sin. There's a choice to be made there, to follow Jesus or not. And the fact that here in verse 21, that sin is singular, tells me that Jesus is referring to the sin of unbelief. The choice to not believe and follow Jesus Christ. But those who choose to follow Jesus Christ are in the light, are making the choice to follow the light, to have this light, this lamp uh, direct their path before them. Now, to follow Jesus doesn't, always, doesn't mean that you will always make the right decision 100% of the time, right? Experience will tell you that. But it means that Jesus will abide in you as he transforms your heart so that your enslavement to your sinful preferences is broken. Romans 6, verse 1 says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means, for how can we who died to sin still live in it? Then continuing in chapter 6, verse 12, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members as instruments of righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. In 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Right, the God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, way back in Genesis, in the creation of the world, when there was void, when there was darkness, when there was chaos, spoke light into existence. That same God spoke light into our hearts. He said, let light shine out of darkness. And then going back to Romans, the, back, the passages in Romans 6, right, it, tells us that to, it tells us that to follow Jesus means death. To follow Jesus, the choice to believe and follow Jesus means that you are following Jesus to the cross where he is crucified, but he is not the only one who is crucified there, but you also are crucified with him. Your old self is crucified with Jesus Christ so that you are no longer enslaved to sin. The power of sin is broken in your life. And then just as Jesus was raised from the dead, so you, by your faith and your union with Jesus Christ, you are raised from the dead as well to new life, a new life that is no longer enslaved to the sinful passions of the flesh. Dead to sin and alive to God. And this is important to remember about our identity. Or because we don't always feel holy. We don't always feel like we are children of God. But look at what Romans says. Dead to sin, alive to God. Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin continue to live in it? It's impossible for one who has died to sin and then made alive in Jesus Christ to continue in a sinful pattern and tendencies, where we have our season where maybe we are enveloped by sin and sinful preferences. But the passage tells us that you are no longer enslaved to those sinful patterns and tendencies and those temptations. You are made new in Jesus Christ, broken, set free. And whom the Son sets free, the gospel tells us, is free indeed.
dead to sin and alive to God. That is what you are. We then come to the concluding question, who are you? So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. So there still seems to be some confusion about Jesus, but Jesus has been very clear from the very beginning. And they're also not understanding where Jesus has come from and where he's intending to go and who sent him. And just in case the readers are confused, the author tells us plainly that Jesus is referring to the Heavenly Father, that Jesus comes from the Father, who is a witness to Jesus, and which brings, the, brings us back to the, the question of witnesses. Who are the witnesses to Jesus Christ? When Jesus is the light whose brilliance doesn't emanate on its own or by itself, but comes from its source. And in this case, it is coming from God. He is sent by God. But back in chapter 5, we have a total of five witnesses to the identity of Jesus Christ. In John 5, 32, Jesus says, There is another who bears witness about me. And I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. So there's one witness, John the Baptist. Not that the testimony I receive from man, not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but that I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than John for the works, number two, that the Father has given me to accomplish the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. Number three, the Father. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen. Do not think I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, number four, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. There's number five, the writings. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So John the Baptist, the works, God the Father, the scriptures, and Moses all bear witness to the identity of Jesus Christ as the divine Son of God. And what's more, that there was, what's more is that there was a greater revelation that was coming. And he says it in verse 28 of John 8. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. It's kind of ironic because they're asking, will he kill himself? But they are the ones who deliver up Jesus to be killed through the cross. But in their doing so, the full revelation of the Son of God will be revealed. It doesn't mean that everyone will see it that way and come to believe in Jesus, but some certainly do. Right? We think of the two criminals who were crucified next to Jesus to the left and his right. One of them at the cross believed in Jesus. And even one of the Roman centurions looked up at Jesus as he was crucified and said, surely this is the Son of God. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. We've seen the Gospel of John, and we will continue to see that Many of those who follow Jesus never make it as far as the cross. But it is the cross that gives the 
the world the fullest revelation of Jesus Christ, of his identity, because it is through the cross that then we see the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's why in John chapter 6, probably the most disheartening passage in all the Bible, as Jesus is talking to the crowds, the people who are following him, who are on the verge of forsaking him because they can't bear to listen to his words, he sort of makes this appeal, what if you were to remain and see the son ascend to where he was before? But they don't remain. They stop following Jesus. They could not and they would not continue to follow him. Following Jesus does not end at the cross. It doesn't even end at the ascension of Jesus Christ. But following Jesus also beckons us to follow him all the days of our life. And I love this last statement that Jesus makes. He says, he has not left, that is God has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. How is Jesus so confident of, about God's abiding presence with him? Through his always doing what pleases the Father. One of the names given to Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. And then back in chapter 6, Jesus makes clear that he is greater than Moses. Right When Moses was appealing to to Pharaoh to let God's people go and was performing signs and wonders, right? The people began to revere him because this was a man who walked with God. And then as Moses led the people out of slavery in Egypt and into the wilderness and God, and Moses went up on the mountain to speak with God and he came down from the mountain with his face shining because he had been in the presence of God. People knew visibly that this man had been with God. But here is Jesus. Here who is one who is greater than Moses, the very son of God. God with us. Jesus is the light for the world, for he is God with us. And that is why we aim to follow him. As believers, we have the abiding presence of God with us through the spirit who lives within us. And thinking back to the witnesses and thinking about who you are, the reason why this is so important for you as a believer, as a Christian, is because, the fa- because of the fact that your life has been changed. You are not who you once were, but now you are defined by who you are through the lens of Jesus Christ, or somebody who is redeemed, somebody who is no longer enslaved to sin, somebody who, has, who is considered as an adopted son or daughter of the living God. Right? You are not who you once were, dead to the old, alive to the new in Jesus Christ. That is part of your identity. That is part of who you are. And so, yes, sometimes our old self can kind of rear its ugly head in our present lives, but you're no longer defined by who you once were and those tendencies of the past, even if they tend to creep in now and then. Your old life is a testament to your new identity in Jesus Christ. The fact that you're no longer the same as you once were. And also look at the witness of the scriptures, like Romans 6 that we read earlier. The scripture says that you are dead to sin and alive to God. So believe the scriptures. Believe what the scriptures tell you about who you are. Let the scriptures define who you are. This is all through the salvation purchased for us by Jesus Christ.